Welcome to the NCO Journal Podcast, where we explore NCO professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss published articles with authors and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. I'm your host, Chago Zapata, Managing Editor of the NCO Journal at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Today, we discuss the article, Creativity, the Backbone of Initiative, by Dr. Richard McConnell, Associate Professor of Tactics at the Army's Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and Dr. Angus Fletcher, Ph.D. from Ohio State University. With us is Dr. McConnell, Staff Sergeant Brandon Cox, Senior Editor of the NCO Journal, Editor Tim Clements, and Special Guest Jacob Mong, Assistant Professor in the Department of Army Tactics. Thank you all for being here, gentlemen. We'll start with you, Dr. McConnell. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I enlisted in the United States Army uh, in 1985, um, and I was in the reserves in the Guard initially. I was commissioned into the field artillery as um, in 89, and um, my first assignment after finishing up my schooling was Desert Storm. So I was a fire direction officer in Desert Storm. Uh, I served overseas in Germany as well as uh, at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and other places uh, here at Fort Leavenworth, too. Retired from active service in 2010, and I've been teaching tactics at uh, CGSC ever since. Um, but I also have several research interests. Uh, I got my doctorate in management and organizational leadership in 2016. And ever since then, I've been trying to do research that I thought would be relevant to the United States Army. Uh, Wargaming was something I, st- I studied and published um, with the Association for Business Simulations and Experiential Learning back in 2018. I published a number of things with them since to include, right now, the Creativity Study, which just came out last month. And um, the uh, Creativity, the Backbone of Initiative that, that was published by you, uh, is a sort of a summary article of that research report to kind of talk about the creativity research that we did. And also we did a writing study that was uh, examining how to improve writing skills for students here, but that will also be applicable to the rest of the Army, I'm sure. Jacob Mong, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I'm Jacob Mong. I uh, was a, uh, I enlisted in 1989 uh, as a UH-1 repair, uh, did some service with uh, 18th Airborne Corps and uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm as well, so a Desert Shield vet. Um, and then uh, Germany as an enlisted as a crew chief. Uh, after that, uh, went to uh, college on a green to gold scholarship, Be, uh, became uh, got my commission in 1997 as an Army aviator, uh, spent uh, the rest of my time in the military uh, as an Army aviator, uh, Fort Carson, Korea, Fort Bragg, uh, Fort Rucker, uh, now Fort Novacell, uh, and then uh, finished my career as a Department of the Army Tactics instructor here in 2016, retired, joined the Department of Army Tactics as a civilian instructor, and uh, have continued uh, to teach uh, Army majors uh, about organizational leadership and uh, planning and doctrine. Uh, so uh, worked with Dr. McConnell on several uh, articles and projects, and uh, just really glad to be here. So I don't know if there's any specific way that you guys would like us to to to, to call you while we're talking, uh, but I think it you know the more informal. Sure, sure. So whatever whatever you would prefer, let us know. Call me Jake. I call me Rich. And we have Tim and Brandon and Chago. Okay, so let's let's kick things off. Rich, can you walk us through the creativity thinking study? 
first of all, what what kicked things off? Was it is it a specific person, or was this an initiative that you started? It was uh, almost an accident, a happy accident. Um, I, I've done research and I've published extensively, um, you know, with stuff that we studied here. But because of that, I've actually developed some relationships with people outside of the army in places like University of Pittsburgh, you know, Ohio State University, uh, Chicago University. And um, there was uh, an occasion where I had a, f- a colleague of mine put me in touch with Dr. Angus Fletcher because they said, yeah, you know, your wargaming study sounds a little bit like some of the stuff that, that Dr. Fletcher or Angus has, has been studying. Would you guys be willing to talk to each other? And Angus was like, sure, sir. And so we get on a phone call. Uh, and it was just like, uh, so one of the things I study is something called exceptional information. You know, it's information that is an indication of a surprise that happens during execution. And it's, and it's the living embodiment of the phrase, no plan ever survives the first shot of combat. It's an old saying because it's true. And so exceptional information is this thing where you get surprised. You didn't know about it, that it was going to happen, but it did. And then you've got to do something about it. And that requires creativity. I mean, imagination, right? If you can't accept, oh, my gosh, this thing that we didn't expect to happen happened. Now what do I do? And it might have even been something you even imagined could possibly occur, but it did. And, you know, history is replete with examples of this. And so I'm having this conversation with Angus Fletcher, and we're like practically com- completing each other's sentences. It was like – because he was, he was looking at narrative story science. Uh, his, his theories are, hey, narratives are, are inventions that we created to help us do things. Uh, he has a book called uh, Wonderworks that came out last year. Um, and, um, and so that, that started off the creativity study. We you know, wanted he, – he had um, a, an approach to narrative story science that uh, he had seen work in corporate America. Increase, and he worked with uh, Fortune 500 companies, worked with people out in Hollywood, people in the Silicon Valley, and he had just recently inaugurated a, a, a kind of a partnership with the special forces community, because of course they have to be creative to do their jobs, and so they were, they're they've been doing this stuff, uh, this narrative approach for over a year now, and so uh, we, that's how we started the study um, almost two years ago. Um, it took a quite a while to get the study, you know, put together the protocol so that we could do it because you have to go through the IRB process, the internal review board. And uh, we finally got the internal review board uh, complete in December uh, of 2020 or not 2021 rather. And then we started the study in in May of last year and um, we did it at Fort Belvoir. We did an initial collection of data there and then we followed that up with data collection here at CGSC at, at Fort Leavenworth, Canvas, Kansas. So, Can you talk about that study? What, what exactly did it entail? So basically what we did is we had um, a, stu- a class called creative thinking, which is really sort of a discussion of the concepts of creativity. You know, what are the theories out there? How do people believe creativity works? And it really sort of centers on something called divergent and convergent thinking, which is a theory initially put forward by Edward de Bono in the 50s, 60s. And it's the way a lot of people believe creativity works. Well, um, we don't see it that way because creativity um, is divergent and convergent thinking is really a form of logic, and computers can do this. Uh, Dr. Fletcher and I don't believe that, and we think that uh, narrative is 
real creativity and that um, it's the result of lived experiences, which computers do not have. So, um, so basically what it is is our lesson is a three-step process. Step one, like Jago, you and I are a team for a moment. And um, we both read a prompt and you and I tell each other how we would solve that problem. Step two, we receive another prompt. And now we pretend to be each other. I'd say how you would do it. You say how I would solve the problem. And then the third step is something called plot twisting, where we propose threats or opportunities or alternative futures not considered in the initial prompt. Hey, how would that change your solution? And basically what this does is it stimulates the creativity centers of the brain. It does a couple things. Um, so, for example, uh, if you've ever de dealt with commanders that are really good at expecting what's coming next, right? We call this sort of visualization. We talk about visualization all the time. We, you know, it's like a princess bride moment, right? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And, uh, you know, it's commanders that are good at this. They can look at the situation. They can find clues in the environment that tells them, hey, I think the enemy's up to this. We should get ready for it, and here's what we should do. Problem is, is that commanders oftentimes can't even tell you how they did it. And it's almost like it's a form of magic, which it isn't. It's a form of a combination of experience, education, pattern recognition. And what we want to do with the study is try to find ways to replicate that in junior leaders at an accelerated rate. Because if we can, this narrative process I just described to you, what it does is that now I, I'm not you. You're not me. So when we propose how you would solve each other's problems, we're really sort of filtering this through our own brains. And now I learned something about you. And if you're better at visualization than me, I'm going to gain from that. But if you're the senior guy and you're better at visualization than me, um, you're also gaining me role-playing you, which might improve your visualization. So – if I were king for a day, the way this would look is like a command post, right, where everyone's visualizing together, which is what we want. And I call this in, in the, the article Seeing Through Fog, Developing Fog of War Resistant Visualization, I call this corporate visualization. And that's what we want to achieve. So in the creativity study, that's – you would – the test group got that special lesson. The control group got the legacy lesson, which is really a discussion, a facilitated discussion about creativity. We had a pretest and a post-test. And the pretest and post-test was you got this little prompt. Hey, here's this problem. Uh, here's a piece of paper. Um, write out your solution and even sketch something if you'd like. And, um, and then they, they were de-identified. So, you know, they, they signed an informed consent form. And then they would put the informed consent form and the um, pretest in a box out in the hallway that was secured. And then uh, they'd do the post-test after the class. And so, for example, Jake was on the team that helped me, you know, collate and do all the coding. Because what we would then do is, is get all of those offerings, and they're in admin control number order, and they'd end up on a, on a spreadsheet. And then so all, all the guys who were ev evaluating the level of creativity would get is a spreadsheet with de-identified numbers. So they'd never know who it was 
that participated, whether we were test, whether they were controlled, they wouldn't know names, just a number, all randomized. They, they were on something called the Consensual Assessment Technique Team, or the CAT. And the CAT, what it would do is we, we had a list of credentials, and then CATs have been a, around for a long time. A lot of people say, how do you evaluate creativity? You evaluate creativity through the CAT. It's like the gold standard for evaluating creativity. You create a panel of people with certain credentials. You're not going to get all the credentials in each human, but perhaps you'll get all of them in the aggregate, and those individuals we're going to evaluate each pretest and post test very rapidly on three variables. First, novelty, how surprising and unusual is it? Feasibility, can it work? Suitability, would a commander be willing to attempt it? And they do it on a, a one to seven point Likert scale. And then that all goes into a spreadsheet, which then I provided to Morgan Cornstubble, who's uh, my math expert, uh, she's a former West Point um, math professor, and she did all the statistical analysis, which gave us what, what you see in, in both the NCO journal article, but also in more detail in the research report uh, that was um, published by ABSEL, the Association for Business Simulations and Experiential Learning. And I think I'll just kind of hand it over to Jake for a minute because Jake was on the team that helped me put that together. Do you want to describe what that was like, Jake? Not very creative. A lot of, a lot of nug work. But uh, the, the, the idea was not so much to be creative on the team as it was to capture how the students were expressing their creativity. And we had to find a way to capture that so that we could study it. And then once we got to the point where we could look at the data and it was digestible, then we could make – judgments and references and statistical analysis. So there was, there was a lot of work that was involved uh, in just capturing that information. Uh, but the idea there afterwards was, okay, well, we had some great ideas and we had some okay ideas and some not so great ideas. And how did we capture that? And did what we do in the classroom help improve those results? And I think we found that we did. It did. As a matter of fact, what we discovered was that the test outperformed the control in every way that we measured. Um, they were more creative in general um, than the control as a result of the treatment. And, uh, you know, we isolated one 14-person group. They had a bump of almost 20% increase in creativity. Then there's this whole thing called Cohen's D, which is a score that looks at magnitude of change. And so for the big group that we had, which was like 230-plus humans here at uh, Fort Leavenworth, and those people, um, almost a full probable error in change. So probable errors are usually, are, are uh, 15% at a go. So this was at a 0.93. So it was a, a quite, you know, so like IQ is calibrated to probable errors. So – of a probable error for uh, IQ is 15 points. Well, there is no such thing as creativity quotient. But if there was, and we can use this as a metaphor, is that our test group improved by 14 IQ points as the, if IQ were the ability to solve complex open-ended problems under a time constraint. So that's how we're sort of equating that to make it a little more accessible to people. It's, it's a definite statistical increase in creativity. 
How about we tie this to NCOs? Absolutely. Give it a tie to NCOs. Break it down. What what's in it for them? What what does this what does this study mean to 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 our audience out there? So let me quote Angus Fletcher because Angus, of course, is not a soldier. He's an academician, and uh, he says, "You know what I admire about you folks in the army is that you don't get to choose the problems you choose to solve. Right? You get given problems, and they're usually tough ones to to solve." I saw this on both sides of the, the rank structure, right? I remember being an enlisted guy out in formation watching, you know, leaders make decisions. And then I remember being a battery commander and I had a first sergeant. And oftentimes in, in my best intentions were I'd create problems that top would have to solve because I, I, I would try. So he'd done it a hundred times, right? And I'm, I'm, the, this is my first time commanding and I'd come up with a, 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 a intervention in some sort of problem we're trying to solve. And then he'd have to come in and unscrew the mess that I had created. Um, and so I, I think NCOs, if, if I say the Army has, doesn't get to choose the problems they solve, I would say it's doubly so for NCOs. NCOs are usually handed something that is in progress going poorly, and they have to fix it. And often that retire, requires them to first understand the perspective of the person that started this intervention which requires the same kind of skill, almost an empathy, okay? If my first sergeant couldn't understand, why did McConnell try to do this this way? <laughs> How did he get here? Oh, I know why he did that, and this is the intellectual trap he fell into. And, and fortunately for me, I had a great first sergeant, and uh, for, for Sergeant Oren Wright, who, who will probably listen to this, um, and Top used to go, hey, sir, okay, I understand why you tried that, but this is where that pitfall lie, and that's why it happened that way. So as I continued to command, and I commanded with him for 12 months before he retired, and I, I continuously learned because I was gaining from his visualization because he would share that with me. He says, listen, sir, I've done it this way, this way, this way, this way, and this way. Here's the one I think is the best because of its the, the outcomes. Of course, the, the man had been a first sergeant for a significant amount of time. And therefore, this narrative approach would help not only us improve people's visualizations, but I think it's going to be an incredible leadership development tool. Because if I have some, if I have a first sergeant or a platoon sergeant that's been doing this stuff for a significant amount of time, if they can do this perspective taking thing and this plot twisting thing with others, Say, for example, their battery commander, company commander, platoon leader. We're going to end up with a lot more effective teams, in my view, because we understand each other better. It will be of many minds because my first sergeant's mind was very different than mine. But the longer we were operating together, we began to, you know, fill in the blanks with each other. I would understand in similar ways as he did. And that made me a better leader for the experience. And so... That's how narrative, I think, can help us, especially with the NCOs, because I think the NCOs could benefit tremendously from this. Yeah, I'd like to just kind of jump in there, too. You know, one of the things that, that has to be uh, – the conditions that has to be available is uh, – there's a couple of them. One, uh, creativity isn't bad. I, I'd be willing to bet that there's some some NCOs out there listening to this and creativity is bad because that's how I usually get into trouble or that's how my my boss usually gets into trouble. You know, and, they, and it's almost a meme. That, well, they went and got creative and that what they should have done was this. And if you have 
recognizable problems and problems of the usual sort, then you're right. It, you know, there's probably a, a, a template or a path that's that's very easy to recognize and the experience definitely takes over and the training takes over. And, and that's when that's when, you know, the NCOs come to the rescue of their officers. And, and I think that that happens quite a bit. So what's going to happen in combat, though? What's going to happen uh, in the future? And one of the things that we're universally bad at is trying to predict the future. We always get that wrong, even at the highest levels of our military with the, some of the smartest people uh, in support. So uh, one of the things, if you read Kevin Ashton's book, it's called How to Fly a Horse. And one of the assertions that he makes is how commonplace creativity is. You go, say, to a command and staff or a training meeting with a bunch of officers, a bunch of first sergeants and NCOs, and usually the first thing that happens after that meeting is the sergeant major says, okay, all the first sergeants in my office. And what they're probably doing in there, I don't know, I haven't been in there, but I would, what I bet they're doing is, is they're trying to figure out how they're going to make all of this work. Uh, and that's probably what's happening in that meeting after after the the big meeting. And, and because the the people who have to execute it you know, have to reconcile with, okay, what are the expectations? So when we get into combat or we get in some of these future situations and we don't have a pattern, we don't have a template, we don't have something that we can recognize and doctrine may be failing us and our plans are not as accurate as we would like them to be, then creativity becomes a requirement. Yes. Creativity becomes necessary because we are now in uncharted territory. And I we are going to be facing problems uh, in those uncharted territories, you know, probably sooner than we think and, and in ways that, that can be catastrophic if we don't come up with some creative solutions. So uh, I might, what I would, to answer the question, what's in it for the NCOs? One, while you have to be nested and you have to follow the orders of your commander and you have to meet the expectations of your NCO support channel and your leaders, I'm not trying to advocate to do things that they say or differently. That's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is in collaboration and conjunction with them, recognize that the, the creative solution can come from lots of different places and that uh, that solution may be better than you know what you've seen or what you've recognized in the past. Uh, so uh, in terms of creating an environment to be creative, be open in, uh, to that environment for those types of things to happen. And you might be surprised where those solutions come from. Yeah, let me pile on that for a second on just one other thing regarding that. So, um, you know, my dad, uh, I'm, I'm the third generation artilleryman in my family, man. My dad was a uh, an aviation artilleryman back when there was such an animal, you know, and, uh, you know, before there was an aviation branch. And as such, when he retired out of the Army, he taught me how to fly. And uh, so I was settling out as an aviator before I had my driver's license. And so Jake and I have talked about this at length because, you know, uh, he is aviator uh, background. I want my pilot to use a checklist. Absolutely. If he's taken I, off the I, I aircraft, second that. You know, <laughs> you know but uh, – and as long as a checklist or doctrine is working, you should use it. Absolutely. But if it – what we've gotten surprised on n- numerous occasions and, – and I, I say this coming from an artillery perspective, right? Artillery guys, everything's a number, right? But when you start to deal with human beings – they don't always respond to numbers. They're not as quantitative. They're awful qualitative and subjective, and they don't always b- behave rationally, or at least not in accordance with rationality you would recognize. 
And that's where this creativity piece comes from. And this whole narrative approach, approach also, one of the things we want to start looking at is the perspective of empathy. Because now if I talk to you, Tiago, and you're my commander, and last time you did something, I didn't understand why you did it. But now when we engage in this visualization slash narrative practice, I now understand your perspective better. I've gained empathy for you. And look at the greater implications this could have for society. I mean, narrative has a huge amount of impact there. So I, 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 because that's the other thing too. One of the things that makes officers and NCOs work well together is when they have a little bit better understanding of each other. Yeah. Right. Good, I mean, good dialogue and understanding yes. collaboration. Yeah. Do, you know, if I can't see somebody else's perspective, that's not helpful. You know, maybe their perspective is going to make my thinking better because it's not the way I think. It might improve the quality. Can you um, give some examples of creativity in the U- Ukraine-Russia conflict? Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. This is a, so amazing to watch. I've been accused well, by – Well, wait, wait. Dr. McConnell, McConnell uh, Rich. Yeah. If you could, though, tie it to NCOs. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. so I've been accused of being like a drug dog in a, in a crack house when it comes to stuff in Ukraine. Every day I, you practically read something where – I mean, the Ukrainians, um, when 2014 happened and Crimea fell, a bunch of young people that had been um, in high school in 2010 and went off to college and and studied things like computer science and whatnot, came back, and they had been friends in high school in a drone club. They played with drones. They went to the Ministry of Defense and said, hey, we think the Russians aren't done. They're coming back, and we think that this could – you know, drones will be important. We'd like to help you. They'd like, well, we agree with you, but we can't afford you. And they said, no problem. We're crowdsource ourselves, which they do. It's like a GoFundMe for drones. And they create these incredibly innovative drones that can drop RG-36 anti-armor grenades on top of things. I mean, this is strange looking little um, potato masher grenade that um, had a little parachute in the handle and you were supposed to throw it above the tank and it would float down and hit the top of the tank. It was an idea that didn't really work, but it worked out pretty well for the Ukrainians because they 3D printed a fin on that. So, I mean, that was what caused the 40-mile traffic jam north of Kiev last spring, in, in the spring of 2022. So a lot of those guys ended up getting in very, very, uh, you know, collaborative uh you know, they would put those guys with the drones on the back of a quad bike with the special forces operator and they would go out and they would launch. And it's created exceptional information for the Russians because they never expected it and they didn't know what to do about it. And it just caused havoc. They, they, um, wanted to improve their air defense because they have all these drones. They went into the arms market and they've, they found this, uh, air defense gun. Made in World War II by Hispano Suiza, which is a Portuguese car company. And it's not that accurate, but these drones are about the same speed as a World War II plane, right? So now how can I make this more accurate? Well, they get an, uh, an American camera and a Chinese tablet. They put them on this thing, and now it's a lot like the automated weapon system on, t- on top of a striker, which is extremely expensive, but they're almost replicating the same technology at a fraction of the price. So why do I say this? Okay, so NCOs would have to receive that brand new equipment and figure out how to use it and employ it. 
okay? You know darn well they're going to be the ones training people to use it too. And so just think this. I'm going to just give you an example that just blows my mind. I'd love to go to Ukraine and just talk to somebody, especially they're in the first people I want to talk to are the NCOs. Because, <clears throat> all right, look how fast they're fielding equipment. I mean, think about that. Look at all the kind of stuff we go through for a new equipment training team, a net team when they come out. That's a lot of work. Takes time. They're doing it at lightning speed. So look at the artillery community, okay? So, and I'll give you an example. In the artillery community, uh, we have, we define the circle as 6,400 mils. German artillery is 6,000 strick, and so is the French. I believe the Russian circle is 6,200. So my point being is that they, you, you don't even have the ability to agree on how we define a circle. And for an artillery piece, that's huge. And so they're, they've got Russian equipment. They've got French, German, us, all of that. And that means that somebody, some NCO, is leading a gun crew out there um, and having to learn that really quick and employ it in the field. And then they're taking them and oftentimes going, that's, that's great, but we're going to put you on this thing. A lot of the tankers that are being trained right now in, in the German tanks that are about to be employed, what are they, the Leopard? Yeah, I think it's a Leopard. Um, and um, that's a totally different tank than what they've been in. And they're taking those guys off the line, training them, and they're going to probably be what would take months and months going to do it in a fraction of the time. And they've been fairly effective. And so that's just um, – some examples in Ukraine that's unfolding right now, we'll probably, from a learning perspective, be studying what they're doing for years to come. It's groundbreaking. But it's, it's an expression of creativity because people get creative when they have to, right? You know, necessity is the mother of invention, they say. Well, Ukraine is in a fight for their lives. Uh, it's, it's an existential threat. And so they focus not on necessarily what's optimal – but what can work and they're proving it on a daily basis of what is possible and what can work. I mean, a bunch of drones with these antiquated anti-armor hand grenades that, you know, the Russians made tons of them. Nobody wanted them because they developed the rocket propelled grenade. This is much safer than trying to f creep up on a tank and throw this thing in the air. So now what you have is something that they've repurposed and it's working. On, on the bottom of a drone. And then somebody is going to have to train those operators to use it. And that's usually going to be an NCO who's going to have to learn it quickly and help people learn how to deploy it. I, I would think in a much broader sense, and those are some very, very specific examples, and there's lots more that are out there. And I think the diversity of equipment is a great example uh, because just like you said, the NCOs are the ones operating and leading <clears throat> the soldiers on it. But in a very broader sense, and I'm going back to um, doctrine here, uh, I think one of the things that's helped them out immensely is their embrace of uh, mission command yes. and their ability to say, well, uh, this is this is working, this isn't working, but you know, because of the nature of the conflict and because of the constraints that we have on ourselves, we're going to have to trust our NCOs and our junior leaders a lot more than if we were standing right next to them or giving them detailed commands and saying turn left and turn right and doing every little thing. So the whole idea that the, 
NCOs have embraced since the to- the dawn of time is you know taking the personal initiative and taking the initiative is enabling the Ukrainian military to retain the initiative in the defense of their own country. So I would argue that you know enabling that mission command and giving uh, you know understanding that we have to power down and we have we might have to give broad orders that are based off of. Uh, nothing more than commander's intent, uh, but hey, go out there and and make this happen. You have to be creative to do those things, and they they are a learning organization. The they they have learned some hard lessons in 2014 and have come back and put those lessons into action uh, on the battlefield and are doing quite well uh, and and punching above their weight quite well. Absolutely, and Jake's point about initiative is the reason why we in, we titled the article the way we did. It's drawn straight from the NCO creed, you know, and and creativity is the backbone of initiative. If you can't be creative, you cannot seize the initiative. You can't take initiative. The the phrase while you guys were talking, I was thinking, you know, the phrase that keeps popping up in my head, the cliche, uh, think outside the box. Yeah, right. You know, it's like it's that as NCOs, you have to think outside the box to get anything done. Yep. Uh, just to illustrate a point of something that I had to experience, that I experienced. I, I was in the Marine Corps. I came in at 89 as well, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, I was PAO my entire career. But when I was deployed to uh, to Iraq on my second deployment, I had two NCOs, two two young corporals who were stop, they were stop lost. So getting them to do anything was was a, was a challenge. They, sure. Because what, what, what are you going to do? You're going to kick me out? It's like, okay. <laughs> send me home. Uh, you know, they, 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 their, their EAS had already passed and they were, they were deployed and it was just, a, it was a mess. So I had to find creative ways of, of getting them, um, motivated, of getting them to do the job because I needed them. Of, uh, it was, it was just, it was a challenge that, that I never expected in my entire, I don't think anybody would expect such a thing. You know, you, you think, hey, discipline, uh, orders, you do this, this is what, you know, this is why we're here, you know, whatever. Um, uh, and, you you come to 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 rely on those things, uh, and and when 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 it doesn't happen, you're left floundering. So you have to find creative ways of of going, doing things, of getting things done, of getting them to do their jobs. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, th- there's challenges that uh, that come with everything. And what are the challenges that you face when working with this uh, the, this creative study? What are the, what are the big challenges you guys faced? Well, first of all, it's very different lesson than anything you will ever see. I mean, it's all participation, right? There's no lecture. Um, you know, there was no reading. Um, you know, I mean, this coming year, maybe we'll include the research report as part of the reading uh, when we do it. This, we're going to do a pilot next year. But the biggest obstacle was just being able to imagine activities in a classroom more like this. Um, and that was a little uncomfortable for some of the faculty because, you know, here I was showing up as the principal investigator and teaching them how to teach the class, which was really just like following a script, which most experienced facilitators and instructors and professors don't do. They, 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 they teach it and they make it personal of their own. In this, in this case, in order to generalize the findings, they needed to all sort of teach it the same way so that we could draw conclusions. Otherwise, if everybody taught it their own way, we, we wouldn't be able to draw conclusions from it. And so that was really, I think, one of the biggest uh, difficulties we experienced. I mean, getting it through the IRB process was challenging. 
Um, it yeah, really, it's, it's really kind of counterintuitive. You, because we're studying it, you have to do it this way. So it's very rigid, but we're telling them to, you know, study and capture data to be, to be more creative. So it's kind of, we have, you know, we weren't allowed uh, enabling their own initiative and personal creativity in, in the pursuit of the study. But uh, that was strictly so we could capture data. Uh, but the lessons are still, I think, relevant from, from what uh, the narrative uh, approach uh, that we got from that. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing too is, is that we had nine people on the study um, I did that for the wargaming study too. And I remember telling my wife, oh, I'm never going to do that again. That was so hard because you have all this d- diversity on the team. But when I saw the high quality of what came out the other end, I knew that it was worth it. And so I've done it several times now. Uh, and, um, and so the quality of that research report, and look, there's a lot of people interested in this. So, and I, I'll put a plug for one thing. Uh, if NCOs want to get their hands on something to just get started with this, uh, it, in the uh, re- references for the the um, article is the Creativity Field Guide by Angus Fletcher. And in there is 30 little drills. Each one takes about 10 or 15 minutes to do. It could be easily part of sergeant's time or hip pocket training, and it would stimulate people's creativity and make them more creative. And we need all perspectives if we're going to be creative. We need everybody. And when we do that, and when we include them, uh, we we discover that we have really a lot of intellectual horsepower inside our organizations that oftentimes go unharnessed. And, and I saw this as a chief observer trainer in the Mission Command Training Program. I'd run an exercise. And my job was to look at your plan and figure out where the holes were and exploit them. And see if your f- folks knew how to do something about it. Because that's what the enemy is going to do. That's their whole goal is to exploit your weaknesses. And inevitably, if I would insert a threat or an opportunity into the scenario, there'd be some specialist or corporal or E5 somewhere in the command post that I know they saw it. And they're afraid to open their mouths because they're surely the major knows. And it's like, but they're looking down their little soda straw at their one little piece of the battle that they're responsible for, and that's where it is. And so oftentimes, depending on the culture and the climate within that organization, if they allow this to work, then it can work. And I'll give you an example of this because I, when I, I, when I was uh, in MCTP, we did um, downrange reconnaissances of the units that we had trained. And one of them was a combat aviation brigade in Taji. This would have been in 08, towards the tail end of the surge. And they were shooting a lot of um, Hellfire missiles. And so a lot of the Apache guys in the, in the unit were flying. And so for the aviators around the table, you know that that's, that's a, for the last 54 days, they'd been in the air every day. And almost every day, somebody was shooting Hellfire missiles. So that's a lot, a high op tempo. It had completely decapitated the staff of officers. The NCOs ran the show and it was awesome, man. They had that dialed in. And I remember going to the Sergeant Major and I said, Sergeant Major, I'm just absolutely stunned. This is amazing. These guys and gals are doing amazing work. Did you guys do some sort of a staff X? And he said, no, I wish we had. And if I had it to do over again, I definitely would do it. But in that case, they just lucked into people who are incredibly creative and resilient and adaptive. And I think that's, you know, the NCOs, you know, stepped up to the plate. 
using this technique, we would give them more tools to be better at it. So that's, that's where I see this really, because NCOs and officers have their own distinct personalities and, and, and perspectives, but the more that they're unified in their approach towards visualization, you know, while still maintaining the diversity of their perspectives, that is where you see, I think, the power of this. And I think that's what's happening in Ukraine right now. I think it was really interesting. Earlier you were talking about, I learned something when you were talking about Ukrainian and NCOs. And, and I like how you connect everything back to NCOs because it, it resonates, <clears throat> not just because I am an NCO, but because I've seen many, most of the leadership that I've seen that are the most creative, that fix the most issues are the ones with stripes. And that's the entire time I've been in. And in in today, you told me that they created anti aircraft guns from old World War II guns, and then put a laptop on it, and then made, basically, it sounds like something that we would do if we didn't have it. Yeah, you know, and because uh, you needed it, right? Yeah. Because you need it. Yeah. And oftentimes they say, "Well, we should get this equipment because it's better, etc." But it costs more. Whatever it doesn't matter the cost really, and especially in the aviation world. But it's like sometimes you don't even want to use that stuff because just putting the the bar like the the pipe on the breaker bar is the best way to to get the lug nut tight. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's I think that what you guys were saying after listening was that the creativity piece isn't meant to change like the overarching goals or or no. or, or tactical pieces. It's more like the uh, at the at the I guess at the tactical level of the specific small things that do change the the outcomes of, of larger battles. Yeah, we're, we're not advocating anything. Where NCOs are still soldiers. Officers are still soldiers. Everybody still has to follow orders. But, you know, there's there's gaps, and, and there's not a checklist for everything, unfortunately. Right. And there's times when you have to, honestly, you have to, like you were saying, think outside the box. Uh, you know, the, the thinking outside the box, though, doesn't mean, hey, we – don't do it or we don't do what we were told, it means we look at different options and different ways to make that happen. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that maybe something you haven't, you probably have considered is the fact that um, I'd say the people that have the most creative solutions that see the gaps are the people who do the work. Yes. And that's why the NCOs are the ones who are more. You're closer to the problems. Yes. Yeah. And the yeah. problem is, is the leadership oftentimes is getting the order, creating a plan, and then uh, implementing it. And then the NCOs are enforcing it. So you have the people on the ground touching the, the issue that see the issues. Well, and I would show it, throw it this way uh, to, to apply a scientific metaphor. I could come up with a theory and tell you something about chemicals, but the people who are – mixing the chemicals and then recording whether that experiment is working is the NCOs. And so both, and, and I'll, get, I'll put it even a different way. I mean, there's a book I'm working on, on uh, research methodology entitled astronauts and astronomers. Okay. Um, it was, it's, it was a title drawn from one of the Jurassic park movies, kid that was st stuck on the Island of all the dinosaurs. Right. And there was this interesting conversation between him and the paleontologist where he says, uh, paleontologist says, Hey, I have this theory that there's three types of boys, boys that want to grow up are two types of boys, boys who want to grow up as to be astronomers and boys who want to grow up to be astronauts. 
And he said, you know, astronomers or paleontologists get to study this really incredible stuff by, from the perspective of complete safety. And then, of course, the kid says, yeah, but they don't ever get to go to space. Yeah, see, that's the thing. These two communities need each other, okay? An astronaut that goes into space without talking to an astronomer is liable to fly into an asteroid or something. But an astronomer that never talks to an, uh, uh, you know, an astronaut doesn't have the practical idea what this stuff is. So these two communities need each other. And that's why I sort of see the, you know, you do need the astronomers, which is where I kind of equate the officer corps. Because they're looking at the big picture. They know what the strategy is. They understand what's going on in the operational environment. But there's somebody who's going to have to go out to space in a spacesuit and do whatever it is that has got to be done in order to meet that overarching strategic objective. That's the NCOs. And I think that, again, getting that dialogue. So now um, the officer who is trying to come up with the plan has the, at least the perspective of the person who's going to execute. Because if they don't, the chances are it's not going to work. And so the way we can get everybody talking and understanding each other's perspectives is is key. And the other thing I want to just kind of go to is we are so focused sometimes on getting it perfect, okay? Get the optimal plan people talk about. Um, one of my NCOs um, went on to be a, um, a, a radar warrant, Okay. And, uh, and he, um, he was extremely creative. Uh, we were at NTC and we were in the central corridor about to do a fight up the central corridor. And one of the big problems, we were an MLRS unit that was there to do counter battery fire for an infantry unit that was going to attack an objective in the center corridor. And they were going up against a regiment of Delta 30 artillery from the op four. And my, my guy, my, my radar tech comes to me and says, Hey, sir, there's only one place to put the radar that's optimal in the central corridor. And it's this hill right here. And everybody knows it. And that's why the radar dies in five minutes. We cannot put it there. Okay. Chief, tell me where we ought to put it. We ought to put it right here. And he points on the map to this little draw. And I'm like, chief, no one's going to go for that because it's, it's going to reduce the, the, the width of the radar beam. It's going to degrade its capabilities. And he says, yeah, I know. But there's only one place the enemy can put those cannons, and it's right here. And so now, if they're right in the center of that, even those smaller radar fan, it's going to still be seen, and we can shoot at them. And they'll never think to look for it here. And that, we did it. We managed to get the boss to sign off on it. And, I, and he just went in there, handed the radar deployment order to the boss and said, sir, I'm not leaving here until you sign this. And he comes back with, I said, how did you get him to do it? The next day, about two hours into the fight, in about an hour before the infantry is going to go up on the objective, the OCTs shut their green books and start to walk out. I'm like, oh, no, what did we do? Is it, did we shoot somebody we weren't supposed to shoot? And they said, three, you might as well take a nap. There's nobody to shoot at anymore. You killed all their cannons. We took out every cannon they had, which is not something that happens very often. And, and again, it was not because we put, we looked for the optimal. We looked for the doable, the acceptable that could work that was not obvious to the enemy. And I think that's what you're seeing in, in Ukraine right now is a lot of that type of thing of if you surprise your opponent, you're going to have an advantage. You surprise him more than he surprises you, you're going to have an advantage. And the faster you can learn 
the yeah. more advantage you'll have. It is a learning competition. It's competition and learning. Your article, you, you talk about you're going to be uh, using some of this on in the in the captain's class course is that's what we'd like to do we'd like to get this populated throughout all of army university because when we briefed this to general foley his sergeant major said hey we need to get this in nco pme that's what i was about to ask and that that is that is something that we want to do we want to populate this thing throughout we've already got several communities interested within pme um the theater ballistic missile school out colorado springs uh, the EOD school, uh, it's all NCO focused. They're already applying this. So that's just a start. I'd like to get it uh, a lot more deliberate and, and get it. One, one way to start is anybody in any of the schools for the NCO PME can use this creativity guide and, and incorporate it into their classroom. Did the study take into account people who are already very creative or quite creative? Um, I'm curious, just, you know, is this, would this be more effective baseline to people who may not necessarily be We creative? did look at that. Yes, we did look at that. Okay, so um, we could go and look at the test group versus the control group, which was really kind of interesting because what kind of muddied the waters when we went with the bigger population here at uh, Fort Leavenworth is we, we noticed that the control group started out more creative. And uh, although this wasn't something that we set out to study, it was something that emerged from the study, which is always a thing I love. I, I love making discoveries that I, I didn't expect to make. So what we found was, you know, in the, the control group, you had certain teams where only maybe six people out of 60 decided to participate. Yeah, you know, we can't make them participate. This is voluntary. And I think those people were initially more creative to begin with. And the reason I say that, because their scores were higher. They started higher than the test. The difference is, is that the test group had a larger amount of magnitude of change. So you had, so to, to apply a metaphor, I think that in the control group was espresso. The test group was coffee. And so in the coffee group, you had some people that were creative to start with, and you could see that in the scores. Because every, every one of these made it into an Excel spreadsheet. But when you put them with the not-so-creative people, overall, still, the magnitude of change was larger than the control group. So, Tim, in answer to your question, I, I think that, that the numbers bore out that everybody increased. It's just that there were some people that increased more. Like, there was one table, and I do believe it's in, in, in the article, um, that showed the, the 14-person group that uh, increased almost 20%. And in there, there was one person who was extremely non-creative. Uh, I think their score overall was maybe a one or a two on a seven-point Likert scale on the, on the, on the pretest, and then it just doubled. So it's still just a four, right? So it's not really – but still, statistically, that's a 100% increase. But then you saw other people that started out really, really creative, and they also increased. So I, I think this works for, for both groups. Yeah. And and one thing I just kind of like to add on that, we have to really be careful about saying, well, creative people versus non-creative people. We have this stigma or this mental model where you know it's only artists or celebrities yes. or these people who. And, and again, I go back to creativity is not only very common, but it's also uh, fairly subjective. And, and I'll quote uh, John Lennon here. He says, "Every child's an artist until someone tells them they're not an artist." 
So, you know, they may not have done so well on this particular creativity, you know, uh, practicum that we gave them, but there may be creative in, in, in many different other ways as well. Uh, so uh, I think that we all, uh, and then there's scholarship behind this, we all as human beings have the capacity for creativity. We can all do creativity uh, with the way we express it can be different in different ways. It may not always be something that's easily measurable. Uh, and, and if you talk to anybody that does anything creatively, they'll, they'll also say it's somewhat subjective. So mm-hmm. we have to be careful about that. So I think we all have the capacity for this. We just express it in different ways. And the other thing I throw on top of that is that, um, what this is whole, this whole study is hoping to, or what we're hoping to, to get happen as a result of this. I believe that we're more creative than we give ourselves credit for. We just don't know. And, and I'll, I'll make a, a parallel or comparison to an area, another area which I study is, is more, a moral philosophy. Uh, you know, published an article a few years back with a, uh, a student entitled, What Were You Thinking? Discovering Your Moral Philosophy Using the Forensic Approach. The forensic approach is you're just examining a, a decision you made and you, you figure out how did I morally do that? And once you know that, you know your moral philosophy. And our, our premise in there was everybody has a moral philosophy. Not everyone knows what it is. If you've not done that process to figure out how it worked, you don't know. I think it's the same way with creativity. A lot of us are creative. We just don't realize it. You know, we don't see the level to which we're creative. And I mean, some of the electives I'm teaching right now, one of the electives is called, uh, tactical decision-making for commanders. And I emphasize creativity because good commanders that are able to anticipate what the enemy is going to do and take away options from them, turn threats into opportunities. That's what you want. And if you have that type of a commander, what you really want is people who are creative as well that feed that individual what they need in order to make those types of incredibly timely and prudent decisions. And that's the NCO. So, for example, I mean, a, a scout NCO, a reconnaissance NCO out on the forward edge of the battle, they're the ones who are seeing what's going on. And the level to which they can provide the data to the command post where they can go, I think I've identified where the enemy has put its reserve. Whoa. How important is that? I think I've discovered an, a logistics node that probably the destruction of which – will give us an opportunity and make it so the enemy can't continue the fight. Those are exceptional information, and it's usually the NCOs that that have to find that because they're the ones out there, you know, on the pointy end of the spear. Now they've got some officers out there too, but but a lot of those officers are relying on those NCOs to, to, to discover these things. And I see, I see that as a huge aspect of this. This is uh, the final question. Where to now? Wow. Uh, I've never seen anything that I've touched get this much interest. I have um, an, a professor of practice, uh, Autumn Leverage, down. She's a former student of mine down at Texas A&M. She's interested, and she works for the engineering department at Texas A&M. I know there's an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial uh, professor at the Chicago University of Chicago booth, who uh, Greg Bunch is interested in this. He's actually already teaching a a variant of this to entrepreneurial students. 
Uh, of course, the Ohio State University Project Narrative and Dr. Angus Fletcher and uh, Jim Phelan up there in Project Narrative are these these folks are interested. Uh, we have we've got some nascent uh, projects with University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business who is interested in this. Uh, we also have, um, you know, some projects with the sport, special forces community as well. Uh, the joint special operations university down in Tampa. And, um, just before we went out to university of Pennsylvania to present the paper, uh, at Absel, I was interviewed for a, an hour and a half by a reporter from the New York times. So there's probably going to be an article coming out in that. And, 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 and that's going to be big because um, one of the things that got this thing so much attention is uh, Dr. Fletcher and uh, f- uh, one of his colleagues that was also a part of this is uh, Mike Benveneste uh, from Stanford, uh, wrote an article about the science behind this, about narrative theory. And they published it in the New York Academy of Sciences, which is one of the oldest scientific journals out there. And this article has become the second most read article in the history of the journal. So people are looking at this as very, very closely. Very, There's just a ton amount of interest. And here's the thing. It started here. Um, it, the, the study that proved that it worked here at CGSC, Army University, and so how about that? The Army is something that we already know it is, creative. Think about it. How many things that were groundbreaking and earth-changing started out as something that the Army or the Air Force or somebody in the Department of Defense needed it and developed it? I mean, the first computer that ever existed was a field artillery device, you know, to build firing tables in Yak. You know, so, I mean, and that, that was – Back World War II time frame, you know, I mean, and, and then that resulted in so many other things. I think that that's, that's where, where this is going. I think in the future, creativity is not going to be optional. It's going to be a requirement without which you can't succeed. And we're seeing right now Russia is providing us an object lesson, right? We're watching a smaller creative force punch above its weight against a larger non-creative force. Oh, by the way, what else? They don't have any NCOs in the Russian army. They don't. Just look at that, that one aspect. The Russian non-commissioned officer, what they call a non-commissioned officer, is a glorified private who has not been trained to lead and is not creative. That's it. And that's really the so what, you know, to put it all back together with creativity and the non-commissioned officer car. You're seeing a, a case study of what it looks like when an army doesn't have an NCO core and isn't creative. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And thank you to our audience. Remember to put your knowledge to the page, submit articles, and get published with the NCO Journal. Don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media. We'll catch you next time on the NCO Journal Podcast. Mm-hmm.